Good morning. How are y'all doing? I uh, am so thankful <clears throat> that Tyler agreed to, to lead us in worship this morning. Thank you so much, buddy. I really appreciate that. There's a sense of liberation that comes with uh, being able to sit back there with the choir and, and worship without a microphone in front of you. You heard of um, an ugly cry? Like when you're in public, you try to look presentable when you cry or whatever, but behind closed doors, you just have like an ugly cry. Do y'all not know what I'm talking about? You've heard that, right? <clears throat> okay, don't, we're not going to play that game today. Like if you know, don't pretend like you don't know what I'm saying, okay? So that was an ugly ugly sing back there like I had no inhibitions I don't have a microphone you don't have to hear it I just cut loose man and sing and uh, I was blessed for it there may be only two people that would say they weren't that would be James Tully who sat beside me and Misty Coclacher who sat in front of me they had to just hear it in its rawness uh, for what it was so uh, you may pat them on the back and encourage them as they had to listen to just some craziness but it was good I enjoyed uh, getting to be back there and sing with them. Um, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5 through 10, we're going to learn about building an ark just in case you need one. Just kidding. Don't turn there. That was a. <clears throat> Next, we're going to talk about biblical knowledge. You guys know that God promised He wouldn't destroy the earth by a flood, right? You may have questioned that, but you got to rely on God's word, okay? Circumstances don't dictate God's word. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning, and just allow me to pick up where we left off last week a little bit. So last week we talked about the Holy Spirit having come like a rushing wind or like tongues of fire, the Bible says. Um, I, I just believe that God took advantage of the circumstances that he set up in his infinite sovereignty. And he begins in those moments that we talked about last week to fulfill this mandate that he gave through the resurrected and almost ascended son, Jesus. And that mandate was this. It'll be on the screen behind you, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. To be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even the remotest part of the earth. So, last week, um, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, drew this big crowd together through this miraculous ability to speak in other languages. And then, what we didn't get to last week, Peter stands up and he proclaims the gospel to the multitude. These were men from all over Judea who had gathered in Jerusalem. And he says this message, Heather so graciously read it already this morning, that Jesus is both Lord and and Christ. Do you believe that this morning, church? Amen. So let's pick up reading, if you don't mind, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, the multitude that was gathered, they were pierced to the heart said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself." 
And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. We need that same message today. Amen. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So I, I want to stop right there and just, and just deal with a couple of things really quick. I think that these verses are powerful. And, and Peter has just got done preaching this sermon to 3,000 people. And as we read, well, who knows how many people it was, but 3,000 people uh, were saved and added to the church at that time. But I want to go back and look really quickly, just, just for our understanding's sake. And, and I'm not trying to ease over the edges of the Word of God here. I, what I hope to do is give you clarification on what the Word of God is actually saying to us, okay? So verse 38, if you don't mind, let's go back there for just a second. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word for there in Greek is ace. I sound smart now that I know that, right? I'm not that smart. Um, but here's what I do know. The word there is ace. And grammatically speaking, it can be appropriately translated for. There's no error grammatically speaking in translating that way, okay? The problem lies in that for is kind of an ambiguous word. It carries a lot of different opportunities in the way it's defined. So let me tell you how I think it best should be defined. Like I said, grammatically speaking, it's appropriate, okay? But how many of you know that when we are interpreting God's word, we have to look at context, right? Is that fair? Okay, so we have to look at context. And by that, I mean we need to look at the verses immediately surrounding this passage we're studying. And to be fair to it, we need to put it in context of the whole letter book, wherever you're at in scripture, and it still cannot stand alone, we have to look, does this interpretation, does this translation follow suit with what the whole of God's word says? Amen? Do we know that's true? We can't just pick verses out of context and interpret them the way we think they mean. They have to follow suit. God's word will never contradict itself. Amen? It's the inerrant word of the living God. We believe that? Amen. Okay, so we're on the same page here. So let me give you a few passages because this verse, if read by itself, seemingly says that, if, that we need to be baptized for forgiveness of sins. That's what it seems like it says, right? But that's not it, and here's why. We know from the rest of Scripture that we have forgiveness of sins by what? By faith. We have forgiveness of sins by grace through faith. How many of you know that to be true? Okay. If you don't, or if you question it, and I think that you should, anytime somebody stands up here and presents something, you need to make sure that it adheres to all of God's word. So I've given you a few uh, references to go back on your time and look at. Romans chapter 4 and chapter 10. You'd, you'd probably be really well served to read the whole chapters there. Ephesians chapter 2 is probably my favorite chapter in all of scripture and verses 8 and 9 specifically speak to the fact that we are not saved by ordinance or works but simply by the grace of Jesus another one is 2 Timothy 1 9 and Titus 3 5 so through all of those passages we can know that we're saved by grace not by ordinance or work so I would suggest to you that a better translation at least for the way we understand words in the English language today 
would be that that word for should be translated unto or pointing to or as a result of. Ace also means unto, pointing to, or as a result of. So the verse should probably read something like this. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, pointing to the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, so does that make sense for us a little bit today? Okay, again, I'm not trying to round over something that's a little tough for us to stomach in God's Word. I think that's a, that's a bad idea. But I have to say, I firmly believe this is a better interpretation of this Word, and that's why we believe that we're saved by grace, not by ordinance or work. So, um, I'm not saying, though, that we need to separate salvation from following the Lord in baptism or following that with joining into a local body of believers to help us be discipled. I think you see that's the order of things God set up throughout Scripture. People are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? We naturally will follow Him in baptism. As strange as that is, Jesus did it and commanded us to do it. And then we need to be plugged into a local body of believers for the sake of our discipleship. Our discipleship. Discipleship's not a word. Discipleship and for the edification and encouragement of the local body so that we can find and utilize our gifts, spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit to better that body of believers. We got a pretty good understanding on that verse now? Okay. Uh, Let's look at verse 39 as well. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. I, I like the phrase, all who are far off. And, and I think that maybe this phrase could be speaking of this. So, like I said earlier, all these men came in from all over Judea to, to Jerusalem. So who are the far off? It could very well be their family and friends back home, okay? I also think, and you see this in Scripture a lot, that um, Scripture talks about the difference in Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were those who knew of God and the things of God. They were near to God, the Bible says a lot of the times. And Gentiles, that would be most of us here this morning, were the ones who didn't know of the things of God, historically speaking, and they were far off. So you could make the argument here, too, that he's speaking of the Gentiles, which would be um, all those people who weren't familiar with the things of God, the Jewish people. Um, I also think that those who are far off could be you and I. And I'll tell you why I think that. So the verse says, the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. You kind of get this idea of like an intergenerational thing going on here, right? So those who are far off could be the future of the people who would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think there's an argument for that as well. But one thing I think is really cool is this idea, all who are far off, sounds really familiar, doesn't it? What's the mission statement here at Holland Chapel? Holland Chapel lives to help people who are far away from God find the way to him so that they can do the same for others. And I have no elaboration on that. I just think that's cool. Um, So Peter preaches this sermon. The people say, what do we do now? He says, you need to repent and be baptized, pointing to the forgiveness of your sin. 3,000 people 
respond positively to the gospel of Jesus after Peter preaches this message. So in about 20 minutes, we're going to know whether or not I'm filled with the Spirit like Peter was or not, right? Okay? 3,000 people came to repentance after he preached. You guys got some work to do, okay? And so do I. (laughs) Um, No pressure. All right, let's go ahead and and move on to verse 42. 42 through 47 is where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. So, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. He preaches this sermon. All these people come to faith in Jesus and are baptized and added to the church. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Man, isn't that a just a beautiful picture of what we would say now is the early church at Jerusalem. But let me ask this, what are the rubs in those verses for us today? And um, I said that as we met together with our pastors this week, and they looked at me funny, like, what's a rub? I guess I'm, I'm from South Arkansas, okay, so I got this vocabulary in me that's not common to all men. I'm, maybe sometimes I need the Holy Spirit to give me another language to speak to you guys. But what I mean by the rubs, so what do we see in there that, that kind of, rubs us the wrong way, or, or in other words, what, what do we see in this passage, in this group of, of early believers in the New Testament that we don't necessarily see at Holland Chapel today, okay? That's, that's what I'm getting at here. Are the specific things that we see in this passage requisites for the church in any given time and location? Are, are we supposed to look like this? the early church at Jerusalem. Can we substitute Holland Chapel in for these verses? So could could we read this, that Holland Chapel is devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking bread, and to prayer. Everyone at Holland Chapel is feeling a sense of awe, and there's many wonders and signs taking place. All of us at Holland Chapel are together, and we have all things in common. Some of us are even selling our stuff, our property, our houses, our possessions, so that we can meet one another's needs. And every single day, we're of one mind. We're gathering together to worship. We're breaking bread and sharing meals from house to house, and we're doing it with gladness and joy. Holland Chapel is praising God and having favor amongst one another. And the Lord's adding to Holland Chapel every single day people who are being saved. Can we do that? Can we substitute our name in there? And if not, then why? Well, let me steal a a line that I think is so short but powerful that Kyle said a couple of weeks ago, and that's this. The book of Acts is descriptive. It's not necessarily prescriptive. 
Okay, it is what we call in the studying of God's word a historical narrative. Okay, it's not necessarily Paul saying, I'm commanding you to do this, this, and this. It's a story, an example, a model for us to look at and learn from and glean some principles that are timeless for us. So it is a historical narrative, and it's also happening in a transition time in the greater redemptive plan of God, okay? And that's important to remember. There are things that mark transitions in God's redemptive plan that we may or may not see elsewhere. So as good students of Scripture, we have to consider the, uh, the cultural or the historical background of a passage. So the day of Pentecost, that's where we're at, right? Everybody say, right? Okay. The day of Pentecost was a feast that was celebrated by the Jews. Back in the day, the Jews, and I, get, I mean still today, um, but the Jews celebrated about seven feasts, okay? Three of them required all of the devout men of Judaism to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, okay? Two of those three feasts were the Passover, which we're at Pentecost, right? Penta meaning 50. The Passover was 50 days earlier, okay? This feast, Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, is where we are now. Those two, there would have been this expectation for devout men of Judaism to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. So we can deduce from that that there was a great likelihood that these men made a journey. We're talking a long journey by camel or foot, okay, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they probably stuck around for the Feast of Weeks or the Day of Pentecost to celebrate that, um, that together. It just would have been, it would just made sense for them to do that as opposed to going back home and then coming back. And I don't think that's a leap at all. So these men, the ones from out of town, had journeyed to Jerusalem with the intention of staying for about 50 days. And like Kyle said last week, and we alluded to this really vaguely kind of earlier, God sovereignly chose during this time when all of these people were present to turn Jesus over to be crucified on the cross and buried, right? Right after, right after Passover, Jesus was crucified on the cross. God resurrected him through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he appeared to people. And then he gave his final message to the apostles, Acts 1-8, before he ascended, the Holy Spirit came upon 120 disciples and caused them to speak in other languages. And some people mocked them and said they were drunk. But he did this to begin to fulfill that mandate while all of these men from all over were in Jerusalem. Why? So that they could go back home and share the good news of the gospel in Judea where they lived with the Samaritans, who many of them hated and were their neighbors, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Now was the perfect time because these men had planned to go back home right after Pentecost. So God in his sovereignty takes advantage of this 50-day timeline to give a mission to his disciples. And they were intending to go back home, but they stayed. 
So now we have north of 3,000 people. You could say the 120 original disciples before the day of Pentecost, plus there's 3,000 people added. Now there's 3,120 people in the church. And a bunch of them are from out of town. And guess what? They didn't pack enough deodorant or snack packs to get them through the trip. I thought that was funnier than that. Y'all are killing me. Some of y'all are, I get it. Some of you guys are sitting by somebody whose stomach's growling and didn't pack deodorant today, maybe. <clears throat> but God's sovereign, amen? And his plan cannot be thwarted and it cannot be upset. So these people stick around so that the Holy Spirit of God could empower the church to commune. God's not taken by surprise that they stayed around. So through the Holy Spirit of God, there is empowerment for the church to commune. Let's look back now at verse 42 with this in mind. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So they were being taught and they were passing on this teaching of the apostles. They were fellowshipping. The word there is koinonia. It's really a dynamic word that they, they were together in oneness of mind and heart, and they shared things, and they did, they did all these things together. They broke bread together. It's implied there that they had intimacy in the breaking of bread and fellowship. You can make the point there that because of that intimacy, that word carries this weight of taking communion with one another. And so they were taught by the apostles. They were sharing that teaching. They were fellowshipping. They were sharing meals. They were praying together. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of fear or awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. They were in awe of these many signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit was performing through the apostles. And he was doing that as a means to affirm their ministry. So... Every time God enacts um, a transition or, or there's a new revelation in the overall plan of redemption for God, those people, that person, that ministry is accompanied by signs and wonders. Let me give you an example. Moses. God tells Moses, I need you to come on the scene. I need you to go to Egypt. I need you to redeem my people from Egypt. And what accompanies Moses' ministry? Signs and wonders, right? He did miraculous stuff. Why? Because God was affirming his ministry so that the people would know this is a messenger from God. We look forward into the prophetic age. Um, Elijah and Elisha, they were, they were doing this crazy stuff. Why? Because their ministry was accompanied by great signs and wonders. Jesus burst onto the scene. Do you know that Jesus was very likely not the first person to say, I'm the Messiah, right? Like the people of God have been waiting on a Messiah forever, okay? So God affirms the ministry of Jesus, the son of the living God, through what? Signs and wonders. So that the people would know this is my messenger. And in Jesus' case, my son, God in the flesh. And now here, Jesus has ascended, and he's entrusted the commission and the message of the gospel to the apostles. So what do we see accompanying the ministry of the apostles? Signs and wonders. It was another transition in the redemptive plan of God. And so he affirmed the message and the messenger with signs 
and wonders. Verses 44 through 46, um, they believed and were together. They had everything in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with anybody who had a need. And day after day, they were in one mind in the temple. They were sharing meals from house to house. They were taking these meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. The church was together, and they shared all their possessions. They were daily of one mind. They met for corporate worship daily. They daily shared meals together in the homes of those who lived in Jerusalem, and they did it with joy. Verse 47, they praised God, and they were having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, What are the principles for us today? This is the early church at Jerusalem, first century. But we're not that church, right? We we are Holland Chapel, 21st century, Benton, Arkansas. So what are the principles of Scripture that we can glean that are supported throughout Scripture and that we can contextualize into our church today in Benton? What, What would that look like? Well, I think one example of what that would look like is on the screen behind me. So I meet with a group, we call them the Live Wires, because they got a bunch of energy, for Jesus' sake. And this is a group of them, not all of them. Um, They go out to eat every single week together. And I think that's what this looks like today in Benton, sharing meals together. Why, Why do they do that? For the sake of fellowship and because they love one another. So this picture is special. They, they, uh, Miss Bonnie... This is in her home, and she was down and ill, um, had some leg issues. And so this group of ladies thought, you know what? We haven't seen her in too long. Instead of going to Wendy's and eating our meal there, let's go grab our food, get an extra bag, and head over to Miss Bonnie's house, and let's eat with her. I mean, isn't that just beautiful? You know, another thing I think that that looks like, there was some young people around here this morning on all fours pulling these pieces of paper out so that y'all could easily find those surveys and fill them out. Why do they do that? Because this is their church, and they want to serve and make things easier. So I think that is a good example of what that looks like for us today. Verse 42, they continue devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. We do not have direct contact with the apostles, but I do believe that we can devote ourselves to the completed revelation, the word of God. Amen? And I think it's important for us to submit to the teaching of those who God's ordained to teach it. We can have fellowship with one another as they had. We can share meals with one another, and we should pray for each other. Amen? Verse 43. Again, they were in this great sense of awe and seeing many wonders take place. And like I said, we we have the complete revelation of God. So God may not choose to use signs and wonders to affirm his messenger. But I would submit to you that I think maybe there's a lot more miraculous things going on than we know. And it's probably due to the busyness and the cynical nature of our society. Like, why would God do these things? miraculous things if in where we live our part of the world people are so cynical and they're quick to discount things God used it remember to affirm his message so if the people whom he is sharing the message with are just going to discount those signs and wonders as something else why would he bother 
Maybe if we took time to be still and quiet and not try to explain everything scientifically or however else, we might be surprised what all is going on around us. Verses 44 through 46. So, so Keaton, what, what about this? I mean, these guys were together every single day. They were selling all their stuff. Are we supposed to sell all of our stuff to take care of one another? Do I think that we are less of a church if we don't sell our homes and property? Megan, do we need to sell our house and our stuff, you think? You should wait till I explain it probably before you answer. No, not specifically. I don't think so, and here's why. Remember, their circumstances were extreme. All these people had come in from out of town, and they stayed longer than they planned. They didn't, they didn't prepare to be there that long, okay? They didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't have any food to eat. And so I believe that the Holy Spirit of God moved on them to meet their specific need in their context. These people are here from out of town. They don't have food to eat. They don't have a place to lay their head. They don't have a daily agenda. So sell your stuff. Pull that money together. Let's live off of one another. And, and they didn't worry if I'm going to sell all my stuff. Well, what am I going to do when I get hungry? Because they knew that their brother and sister was going to do the same thing. They were going to be taken care of. Their circumstance was extreme. And, and I can say that because once we see persecution come into the picture, we get to about chapter 7 or 8 of this study, and the church is being persecuted, and they all flee Jerusalem and go back home, which I think was the original intent that God had in mind for them to go back home with the gospel. We don't see this same extreme type of communal sharing really anymore in the book of Acts or the New Testament, really, for that matter. I'm not saying that we should not commend this church's generosity, okay? I'm not discounting what this church did. I think firmly they were moved by the Holy Spirit to do it. And I am not saying that we're off the hook from being generous to one another. I think that we should be. But they had a specific need in their context. The Holy Spirit inspired and empowered them to meet that need as they followed his leadership. We would do well to allow the Holy Spirit of God to prompt us to such generosity and to meet the needs in our community. Amen? Man, y'all don't believe that. Do you think that we would do well to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit to be generous as he tells us to in Benton, Arkansas? I think so. I think so. And we may not be able to meet daily. Remember, they were their work, what they did for a living was back home. They, they didn't have a daily agenda, most likely. But we can be of one mind, amen? Jesus prayed for that in the garden as he sweat great drops of blood, the Bible says, for us to be unified. We're going to look at that later tonight in groups. John chapter, 20, chapter 17 Verses 21 through 23. And we can worship together regularly. And we should. We can share meals together in each other's homes. And we must do all of that with joy. I think those are principles from this passage. In verse 47, we definitely need to be praising God and showing others favor. These things made the early church at Jerusalem effective witnesses of the good news of the gospel and God used this to add people daily to the fold I have to believe that they were verbal verbally sharing the gospel of Jesus but I know what this passage says and it doesn't say that 
it says they were praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I'm convinced it was the example they were showing of community and love for one another that was impacting people and people saying, I want a part of that. And so God was adding to their number daily. The Bible makes that clear in other passages as well. They will know who I am by your love for one another. I have to tell you, we will fail enormously. We will fall short of executing these principles if we don't allow the Holy Spirit of God to empower us to commune with one another. Man, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we will mess this all up. What they were doing wasn't like incredibly difficult, but I'll tell you something else that maybe is more difficult. What were they not doing here? What were they not doing? They weren't doing things to be divisive amongst one another. They were, they were breeding unity, but they weren't doing it by themselves. The Holy Spirit of God empowered them, and we are desperate for the Holy Spirit of God to empower us towards unity this morning. Amen? I'm telling you, for me, if I don't trust the Holy Spirit in this, I will, I will not only get it wrong, I will go the other direction with it. And I don't know about you, but, but that's the way it is for me. And we see this happen as we move through this series. We're going to see what it looks like when people stop trusting the Holy Spirit. Some examples like Ananias and Sapphira. They quit trusting. And man, it was devastating. And God took it very, very seriously. When the people in the church quit trusting the Holy Spirit, they fail to live effectively in community. Their cost then was great. And I'm convinced, guys, for us today, it's great as well. If we want to see the Holy Spirit of God do something incredible in our community, we have to be breeding unity and community, communion with one another. We put this question up on the screen. If Luke were writing about Holland Chapel, would he describe us similarly to this group of believers? Guys, I, I think in a lot of ways he would. You guys are so faithful to do a lot of things really, really well. And can we say, like, like I can for myself, we, we still need the Holy Spirit of God to empower us to do better? Man, I need it. So, in the way of next steps, maybe, maybe this is a next step for you today. My next step is to follow the example of the early church of Jerusalem and the leading of the Holy Spirit to what? Fill in the blank. If we're going to have communion as a local gathered body, and even when we're scattered, I had a teacher in college who used to say, you're just as much the church when you're scattered as when you're gathered. But as a local body of believers, if we're going to have communion with one another, take this question personally. My next step is to follow the example of the early church of Jerusalem and the leading of the Holy Spirit to do what? And we're going to talk about that more in groups tonight. If you would, please join me as we pray.